The BS Report is a free-flowing conversation that occasionally touches on mature subjects. The BS Report. The BS Report with Ben Simmons. Welcome to the BS Report. Uh, big NFL playoffs last weekend. Conference finals coming up. Patriots <laughs> are playing Indianapolis and uh, Seattle and Green Bay. Lena Dunham's here to talk about it. <laughs> Who do you like? I told you that I want you to make a list for me of who I'm supposed to root for, and I'll root for them. And I told you it's too late. You said that I either have to date an athlete or give birth to an athlete in order yes, to ever Yes, that's care. the only way you'll ever care. It's I told too you late. I care about women's tennis. That's interesting. Why do you care about women's tennis? Because I grew up watching it because my dad cares a lot. My dad, my favorite quote from my dad ever was that he said, sometimes I wake up and I just wonder, what is Venus Williams doing right now? How does she feel? Venus Williams. He's obsessed with Venus. So did he feel weird that Serena just leapfrogged her? He loves Serena too, but I think Venus is just, no, it's just he's got like a strong connection to her work ethic, her look, her vibe. He just loves Venus. So it's like the older, how you're more in love with your first kid than the second kid. Maybe I think that's it a little bit. Like Venus Ven- came on the scene Venus first. was his first tennis kid. Yeah, and I think like my dad always played tennis and was kind of like a weirdo in his tennis community. Mm. And I think when like Venus came on the scene looking different, acting different, representing something different, he formed a strong heart attachment to her. He's never articulated it to me that way. Like yeah. it could be pure could be pure animal attraction. Who knows? But I like to think it's because he, like, identified a t- and admired a tennis outsider. A tradi- someone who would traditionally be an outsider in tennis but has become the ultimate insider in tennis. That could be your 30 for 30, the Williams sisters. I mean, we've, was- we've done different kind of Williams things, but there's a great documentary about them to be done. I actually think, my think personal so opinion, I think Serena is the greatest female athlete of all time. Really? Yeah, I really do. And, not, and I mean, they're both obviously incredible to watch. Like my lack of understanding of the rules of play prevents me from saying that. But obviously both of them are like watching like wonders of the world. And right. Martina and Serena were the only two that if you saw them in person, you actually remembered seeing it because they were so dominant. I saw Serena in Wimbledon when she in uh, the 2012 Olympics and she was just athletically on another plane. It, w- it was like unfair. I have bought things at the Adidas store purely because I saw them on Venus and Serena mm. Williams and then like worn them as casual wear. And she kind of doesn't get enough credit from a femininity kind of pushing the barriers standpoint for you mean, some like, of from the a outfits. feminist perspective or because, if you mean she was just like, I don't care. I'm I'm showing my body off. And well, if you think about it as like the if you think about like the athletic field as the equivalent of a red carpet. Yeah, they've been making crazy daring choices from the beginning the whole time. First, the braids, those incredible braids with like mm. they and also how they came in so strong with like a visual reference with those beads. And then like all of their outfits are amazing. They design them themselves. Yeah. They have a real vision for them. And then what I also love is that in her spare time, Venus is an interior designer. Do you have people that you – this is going to sound weird. Well, we're, we might as well get weird. We're going to get weird. Anyways. We're always going to get weird. There's certain people that you just want to stare at. And it doesn't mean like you're in love with them or anything. But you're just like – I just like looking at this person. Yeah. I, I don't I don't get to see people like this normally in yeah. my everyday life. And I feel like Serena, if she was there, I'd just be like, can I just stare at you for 10 minutes? Because she's the most beautiful, she's just, compelling. There's no other person that looks like her. Yeah, mm. I just want to stare at her. And there's no other person that I think you and my dad are super on the same page about. I this. felt that way about Manute Bowl too. Who's that? He was a seven foot seven basketball player, <laughs> and you wanted to stare at him. I just feel like, wow, can I just stare at you? I really get it. Yeah, I mean, you get I it. just like I love what the Williams sisters represent. I feel like I want. I met Billie Jean King. Billie Jean King, I never wanted to stare at for ten minutes. You didn't, but also a hero in her own. 
Oh, it was so exciting for me to meet her. That's like a big, my dad kind of like in a part of my feminist education was my dad showing me that match when I was a little kid on VHS. Oh yeah, when she beat Bobby Riggs, which yeah. is now allegedly probably fixed, but that's Which right. I don't want to know about. You know what, Billie Jean King had an important part in my life. She, what did she do? I'm going to say I was in fifth, sixth grade, somewhere around there, and she got sued for palimony by her longtime assistant. What is and it turned palimony? Out, palimony is like alimony. With your pal? I, I I guess I think it was called palimony. It's like non-spouse, and it was like they had had a long time affair, but she was married, and then but this was like nineteen eighty or eighty one. It was a woman. At that woman. Point, Billy hadn't come out yet. Yeah, not just that, but this was like nineteen eighty one, and it was like a news story in the sports pages. I used to read the sports pages every day, and I'm reading this. I'm like so cute, imagining like, you reading the sports pages. Yeah, like I got that. my little goggles, my gla- my giant glasses, and I'm like, Dad. But, why is Billie Jean King? It's a female, and she's suing Billie Jean. I don't understand. My dad's just like, well, I, sometimes, or, and all of a sudden, we're just having the conversation. That's incredible. Yeah, so that's that how was you my found first out one. about gayness. Yeah, I was just a sheltered little. I didn't. I didn't. Wasn't really in yet. Funny fact: the way I stuff. found out about gayness was because um, Gabby Hoffman, who's an actor on my show and is also on Transparent. On my show, she plays yeah. Adam's sister, Caroline. Yes. Then on, she is a is one of the stars of Transparent. Amazing actor been working since she was a kid we were sitting together she was i was three and she was eight and we were watching nuns on the run and she was like and there was like intimations of homosexuality in the film nuns on the run and which is like do you remember that as a guys dress up as nuns to go on the run i remember the but i don't i never said idiotic but anyway she goes do you know what gay means and my mom was watching and i was like yeah it means happy and she was like no it's not it's when like a woman touches another woman's vagina (laughs) so gabby who's still my friend and is on girls is a hundred percent responsible for my knowledge of homosexuality wow Mm-hmm. She was she was your your teacher. She and her friend Garrett, who were both eight, these like cool eight year old girls, were like, well, "We know what gay means, and it's not what you think." Wow. Yeah, and then my this, mom was this like, podcast went in a direction I wasn't expecting already. But that's what always happens in your book, though. In your book, though, you mentioned how your sister came out when she was like seventeen, and you yeah. had no idea whatsoever. You were completely floored, and your friends were like, "What are you talking about? How did you not know?" They were all like. Well, she was like a three-year-old little gay kid. Like she used to like walk around in a leather jacket telling people to call her Jimmy. She and Aggie actually had a fight last week about whether she wanted to be called Jimmy or Johnny. Grace has the funniest thing she says where she says that she was briefly straight between the ages of seven and (laughs) ten. It was a phase. It's the best. No, she's 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 awesome. I also think I just thought like our family was so kind of like odd that like there was that we had done all the odd things we would do, and it actually like. When she came out, I was like, oh, this makes sense. Like, there had to be one person who was kind of, like, pushing the push. Not that being gay is in any way odd. It's just um, for a family of, like, like kind of people who consider themselves fairly eccentric, adding one gay person to the mix works for the family self-image. It fits the dynamic. Yeah. Um, did you think – what did your family think of your book, like, you writing so candidly about everything? Like, because you kind of – you're writing a book like that, and you're basically like, I can do the half-assed, I'll spill some stuff, but not really go for the all-out unbearing. 
or I'll just go all out. And it'll be so much stuff that stuff will be hard to stand out because I'm throwing so much super personal stuff for you. And you went for plan B. I went for plan B. It was funny because I was reading Amy Poehler's book, which I love and came out a month after mine. And she does this really incredible job of like being really emotionally honest without revealing like the exact details and chronology of her life. Like she describes the feeling of being divorced without going into like actual details of her divorce. Or she talks about like the experience of being young in New York without like, you know, describing like tripping home from a bar with some guy. Like she just does yeah. a really great job of sort of like protecting what's hers. The PG version. Yeah, the PG version that doesn't feel like you're getting cheated in any way. Yours was like, I don't even think it was released in some states. It was more for like the version. Like, it, was it was like the NC seventeen. Like I would people things, were protesting outside the theater. <laughs> he would send things to my editor sometimes, and he'd be like, "He has two daughters who are ten yeah. and twelve, and he'd just be like, this fills me with so much dread.'" And all I could say was like, "I think I'm weirder than some girls. Like maybe you'll be spared this, but I don't know." I think everybody's weird. I think you're just. I think I took. I read the book and thought she's just being super candid. I mean. Like, and I, nobody's candid anymore. This is, oh, oh, we live in a world now where everybody's just, it's like little tiptoes. Everybody's trying to present some form of who they are, but they aren't really. And you're just like, here's the book. Well, let's just say for better or worse, my book was not vetted by any public relations experts. And that feels fine to me because I don't think that's what memoir is supposed to do. But it's the funny thing about when, you know, I wrote that as a person who's obsessed with the craft of memoir. You know, like that's yeah. always been the, the, I have like 15 memoirs piled on the side of my bed at any given time. It's my favorite genre. I really think about it as an art form, and I really tried to, like, make something that was an entry into, like, personal essay, memoir, like, the world of, you know, the world of writers that I admire. Everyone from, you know, Nora Ephron to Joan Didion to, you know, um, some of, like, the women of the Beat generation who wrote about their experiences to, you know, like, there's, there's some really... You had a game plan, and you put thought into it. I tried. But that being said, it's the funny thing of being a celebrity who's putting out a memoir is like it's also going to be treated as fodder for gossip magazines, which isn't what the form of memoir was initially like. I like memoir because there's something a little gossipy about it. Like I love like there's one of my favorite memoirs ever is called Minor Characters and it's about the women of the beat generation. It's written by this woman, Joyce Johnson, who dated Jack Kerouac. And she taught. And so it's like it's like the Us Weekly of beat poets. Yeah. And it's like, she talks about her relationship. She talks about her best friend who was gay, but also had a sexual relationship with Allen Ginsberg, who was also gay. And it's beautiful and it's complex. And it talks about being female in a really interesting way. And so like, for me, that's the model, but Joyce Johnson's not like getting her work, you know, ripped apart on the daily So it's just a, it's a funny thing to try to put something like that out into the world when you're already known for doing this other thing, like being on television. What happened to your book was a little different, though, because it, it, it veered into the smear campaign. It was complicated. It was funny because— I, it was, I didn't understand it as I was— I, First of all, I didn't even really know about it, some of the stuff, until Jimmy told me. Yeah, Jimmy has yeah, actually, we, been so supportive of We exchanged emails, and you're like, well, I'm going through this whole thing. And I'm like, what thing? And then I Googled it, and— I know, and then I got to— Sometimes I'm in my little sports universe sometimes, and I miss stuff. That's, and I, I had no idea all that stuff was happening to you. That relieves me because— when you're going through something like that, your world can become very myopic. And so yeah. it's actually nice for me to know that, like, some of my friends and colleagues were like, we had no idea this was happening because I was sort of, like, hiding in the back of my parents' apartment thinking that this was – and, you know – You feel like it's on CNN 24 hours a day. Yeah, and, you're like, yeah. oh, there's a television channel called the We Hate Lena television channel. Right. And because I have a tendency to be a little bit of a hermit anyway who's just, like, has my head stuck in my books and is experiencing reality in my own way, like, it's good for me to be reminded – 
I never want to become someone where like what's happening to me becomes the entirety of the reality of the world. And I think when you're being attacked in any way, it's easy to become like dangerously in your own head. And, you know, my parents and my sister were so supportive. They all read the book before it came out. They all it was so funny because the things you would think they would vet, my mom would be like, you never had bangs when you were four. Like, that would be her note. Or, like, I didn't get lice at camp. Like, it would never be the thing, could you not include this story that's that's potentially, you know, embarrassing to our family? Because I think part of it is that both my parents are artists. My sister's a creative person. and a, you Well, your know, mom basically activist. created this selfie. My that's what I argue in the book. She yeah. doesn't think she doesn't think she I'm right, but I truly believe. I like you might as well if you can make a case for it, you might as well say. I it. think she's at the forefront of the selfie, and I actually wish she would release her selfies in a book. But I think she feels like they're not her. The way to do it is to release the selfies and then say, "Beat this, 1972 or whatever year it is." Well, did you can see you the beat, Stevie can you beat Nicks me with selfies this year? from last year? Did you? See that was a big deal. Stevie Nicks released all these like, gorgeous selfies she took in the 70s, and they're thrilling and i feel like my mom has like a great book of selfies in her well you know i'm still attracted to stevie nicks i don't care how old she is i thought you're gonna say you were still attracted to my mom and i was like no i, I agree I, <laughs> well she does have the last day of simmons she does i have a soft spot for all simmonses that's amazing and you know there's not that many of them around and my mom not the many white ones either no yeah. i have to say you're right yeah. i have to say you're right about that my mom is a simmons First, my mom's a first generation Simmons because our family name is Simonoff. And then my grandfather changed it to Simon. Flipped it. Interesting. He changed it to Simon post uh, World War II because he was like, hey, I'd love to not let everyone know I'm a Jew right off the bat. Right. And then my grandmother said, I'm not going to marry you with a hideous last name like Simons. And he said, what if I change it to Simmons? And I love that she just added the M. Added one M. And she was like, okay, cool. And my favorite details that my grandma went, I have a beautiful last name and I'm not going to change it. And her last name was Trussell. Trussell? <laughs> Which is Something not. Like vegetable. Yeah, it's not yeah. that glamorous. Yeah. Nobody's grandmother has a good name. I think that's one of the things I've Dorothy found out. Dorothy Trussell. Like, I yeah, mean, all the names are. She's a cool Wait, name. we got to go back to what we were talking about, though. Oh, yeah. So my parents. And also, it's like I come from this very. I've never realized more than this year that I come from this very liberal, very specific pocket of the world. I grew up around, you know, artists and weirdos and performance artists and political people in a world where sort of. The complexity of human sexuality was openly discussed. I saw a lot of people in non-traditional relationships. I saw a lot of people who would have been considered at the time to have like alternative families. And so even though I'm aware of sort of what what the values of much of America are, yeah. I've been so sheltered from them that it was like I was genuinely surprised by certain reactions. And part of that is because my parents instilled in me such a lack of shame about – my body about sexuality, you know, sort of we always went by that you're only as sick as your secrets model of right. doing business. And so and I remember, you know, my dad always saying to me, like, there's no th bad thoughts, only bad actions. And if you're scared about something, talk to us about it. And so that level of openness was a part of my life from childhood. And so then to see that elicit so much rage and fear in other people was, you know, I'm not throwing myself a pity party, but it was definitely had its challenging moments. Well, I, I, there was a lot of things I didn't like it, obviously, but, you know, we're friendly and, you know, I'm always was worried about you, but also Thank like you. just for creativity in general and honesty and just anything like I, I'm really worried that we're going to end up 
in this world where nobody says anything. And it's, it's like smear? if you can't write that book without some sort of giant backlash slash smear campaign slash everyone trying to gut everything they can out of whatever, that kind of worries me. I mean, it's an interesting thing because, you know, I am a person, I'm a, obviously a firm believer in creative expression. I'm a firm believer that we should all be allowed to express ourselves creatively. And then some people should be allowed to go, I don't want to listen to that. Like, there are plenty of comedians working who offend my sensibilities as a feminist. And so I don't ask that they be banned. I just make the personal choice to yeah. step back. And I think, you know, it was painful to be accused of being things that I know I'm not. Yeah. Um, And to sort of have what I thought was... uh a very natural childhood experience and curiosity vilified. But at the same time, I also wanted to be really sensitive. Like, I don't care. Here's, I can spell it out really clearly. I don't care what conservative white men think about me, but I do care if anything I write is painful for survivors of sexual abuse. If anything I write is painful for other feminists, I care. The difference between not caring sort of what your sort of like enemy party thinks of you and caring about how you affect people whose values line up with yours is very vast. And so I always try to walk that line between being sensitive to, you know, making work for me, but being sensitive to the fact there's a lot of different people who've been through a lot of different things and then tuning out the people. There's a certain audience who will never be pleased with anything I do. So to try in any way to predict their reactions or pander to them is a hopeless pursuit. Well, you also were victimized by two different parts of your book, people just pulled tiny excerpts from that were yeah. totally out of the context of what you wrote and how you wrote them. Yeah. And I think that's a really dangerous outcome of what's happened in the Twitter generation where it's just like you, and you see this happen in sports all the time. A, a guy will say something in a press conference, they'll pull the quote out and then you find out the actual quote was in a different context or there was more to the quote. Well, definitely, you know, I was trying – it's not. It's never a good look to stand there being wildly defensive and I regret – like my first reaction was basically to go on like a Twitter rampage because I was concerned for myself, concerned for my family, concerned for my sister who's my best friend on the planet and right. who had – Well, read, we, we should give some background for it because not everybody probably knows the story. You wrote something about when your sister was a baby, you, you were interested in vaginas. You were like seven. Yeah, I'm still interested in vaginas as a topic of – a topic <laughs> right. of – Right. A right in, written topic. But yeah, I, I... And then people tried to paint this story as that you were an abuser. Yes. And, a seven-year-old abuser. And, you right. know, it's, it, it, definitely, uh, it definitely was something that in our family, we were taught very healthy boundaries. We were taught very healthy sexual boundaries. We were always told the difference between good touch and bad touch. We were always told to protect ourselves. And I think that a huge part of having a sibling is you're growing up together and you're learning about these things at the same and different rates. And, you know, I think every kid is figuring out the world um, siblings as are best like, they can. If you're under eight, siblings are like, they're almost like little animals. Like, they don't know what's right Oh, I remember when and... my, my sister came, my dad would go, the baby's not a toy. Like, that was a constant refrain is the baby. Because right. I'd drawn her with a Sharpie and wrap her in fringe and, you know, run around the house screaming, I found a baby lion. Like, whatever. And my parents were incredibly generous about letting me actually interact with my sister and not treating her like a piece of precious cargo. And as a result, we have an incredibly close and trusting relationship. And then it was sort of that point, part of the book was cherry picked along with a couple of other quotes, some of which were jokes. I ended up I made a joke about sort of like 
I made a joke about the fact that my sister was a very standoffish kid and I was a very affectionate kid. And we still kind of have that dynamic. And so I wanted to hug her and squeeze her all the time. And she would, had no interest in being you hugged. Kind of smothered or her, yeah. yeah, I smothered her. It was like, you know, when we were watching TV, I'd be like, please just hug me for two seconds. And so I kind of I made a joke in the book where I said, you know, anything a sexual predator would do to woo a small child, like candy, promises of DVDs. Right. And that joke was also pulled. You can't joke about that. No, and, yeah. and I uh, apologize because. I recognize as a to be clear, I recognize as a survivor of sexual assault that reading certain things can be an incredibly triggering and painful experience. And so if that my book did that for anyone, then you feel bad. Then I feel awful. Yeah. But what was mostly happening was a cherry picking of um, of uh, quotes from. From different parts of the book to create an abuse strategically, narrative strategically that picked there. smear campaign quotes. Basically. And I have to say that that article came out the day after I launched a Planned Parenthood campaign and the day before the midterm elections. So I just, you know, oh, that's one thing I'll never say about uh, about uh, right wing websites: they're good at what they do. They know how to do it. Yeah, they line it up and they knock it down. It's so, just strange that you got sucked into that whole thing, though. I, it's just I, there's a lot I don't understand about life, but um. being a woman who speaks publicly, being anyone who speaks publicly and openly about politics is a vulnerable position to put yourself in. Hmm. Being a woman who speaks openly and publicly about reproductive rights is a very vulnerable position to put yourself in. That doesn't mean I feel sorry for myself. I recognize completely that that is a, a choice that I have made in my life. And as a result, it exposes me to certain things. So I in no way want anyone to think I'm sitting here being like, it's so hard for me because right. it's not hard for me. I get to advocate for things I'm passionate about and express myself creatively. And I have an amazing job, but I never cease to be surprised by what can be construed as offensive, especially coming out of the mouth of a woman. What's interesting is, all right, so Golden Globes were last night. They were. Tina and Amy tell a couple of Bill Cosby jokes, and the audience like cringes a little bit. I knew they weren't going to get in trouble. Me clapping and wooing like a crazy person. <laughs> I was like, yeah. <laughs> but weirdly, a safe corner because who's going to attack two women about making jokes about a guy who's been accused of like twenty-four date rapes well, and at this counting? Point, and, the Bill Cosby situation. Like, I'm so yeah. proud of Judd Apatow because he's been so open and so. He awesome. went kind of bonkers on Twitter a couple times. I mean, he's just gone hard at it because I think he's frustrated that he's a part of a comedy community where, you know, nobody wants to speak openly about the fact that one of their idols has done something. I mean. I'm always shocked by the public's ability to go 24 women who aren't looking to act who 24 women who are never going to get justice in court and don't have an option of actually getting any money out of this and are going to get violent attention. One guy with everything to lose. Why don't we stick with the why don't we decide to believe the one man until these women are proved? I was I was more amazed that there was that 2006 People magazine article. That was I've long. I've this for 15 years. I didn't know, I didn't know about the People Magazine article. I was like, where was I? I was on the internet. There's lots of male celebrities who I've heard stories about or there's one or two things have come out on the internet and it hasn't gone explosive. And it, t- it took a man, albeit a brilliant man, Hannibal Burris, to bring attention to this. I mean, Hannibal's, Hannibal's one of the f-ing funniest guys in the world. Yeah. But it does make me angry that... At this point, 12 women had come out and it took Hannibal doing a bit in like a Philadelphia comedy club for people to actually listen to these accusations and care. 
And I think what's really hard is even if the court of public opinion is indicting Bill Cosby right now, his survivors do not feel supported. They do not feel heard. They're being attacked. They're in hiding. I mean, it's a really crazy reality. Um, Right now, it's a really crazy world in which to come forward as a survivor. And, you know, the the incidence of false rape reports is incredibly low. And yet, you know, we continue to act as if it's like, you know, a tool women are regularly using with which to topple the patriarchy. And that's just not true. Right. You got sucked into that a little bit with the post, the I don't want to say fallout, but controversy. What's the right word? I did. And there was an unfortunate coincidence in my book in which the name of one of the guys and um, the guy, a pseudonym I used matched the name of um, someone else uh, who had also attended my college and, you know, I, someone I, researched it. And, yeah, yeah. And that I feel awful if anybody who was yeah. innocent was injured in the, in the process of putting the story out. But um, again, you know, people's compulsion to, I wasn't looking to send anyone to court. I wasn't looking to start any kind of, I wasn't looking to do anything, but start a dialogue and share a story that I know isn't just my story. It's a story of millions of, well, the whole women. point of the story was th- the ambiguity sometimes yeah. With a hookup, especially if people have been drinking and you thought one thing happened and then you told the story to somebody else and they were like, you were raped. Yeah. And then you spend the next and eight like, years of your second, life. Wait a second, was I? You spend the next eight years of your life trying to understand what happened while that other person probably skips off and, you know, bones three other girls that weekend at a party. And it's right. a really complicated. Colleges are supposed to be safe spaces for women. And, you know, in some way, college sexual assault is a red herring for the incredible amount of um, sexual violence that exists across this country. And there's a lot of people who are let even more voiceless than college students, but colleges are a great place to start. Right. Well, it's bad. You, that college is a place where you're going to make your worst decisions. It's yeah. the place where you probably are going to understand least the amount, the effect of alcohol. Yeah. You're all there. It's just, it, it's, it's a recipe for, I think back oh. to my four years in college and all the crazy stuff that went on. Back then, just in general, like in, you know, things we yeah. knew about and, you yes. know, I know things is, are better now, but. Well, the interesting thing is it's hard to get really clear figures on this, but I, it, I don't think it's that the incidence of rape on college campuses is going up. I think it's that we're talking about it more. And so that's right. good news. But what's bad news is that because of you know, colleges, A, wanting to avoid scandal or B, wanting to be to, you know, offer due process. Girls end up feeling like their girls, women end up feeling like their reality is denied. And that's a very, very painful thing to come forward with something. Nobody comes forward with an accusation of rape for fun. And I think the Rolling Stone article was a very painful setback for the survivor community because Rolling Stone's in Rolling Stone's negligence, in fact, checking that story has made a lot of women feel less safe in sharing their stories because of the amount of doubt that um, it generated. So you think there's long-term damage from that or at least short-term? I cried damage. when I read the retraction in Rolling yeah. Stone. I was literally sitting in a car in Belgium on my book tour and I'd been following all of it very closely. That's an area of, you know, that's a topic I follow very closely. Everything surrounding the sort of campus sexual assault dialogue that's happening in our country right now and i just started to sob not because just because of the feeling of powerlessness and the sense that and i hope against hope that the measures that rolling stone is taking to correct this like hiring the columbia journalism school to research it and re-reporting the piece and i hope 
the amazing, you know, dialogue that's happening on campuses like Columbia counteracts what they've done. But it really felt like it really felt like they had, you know, stuck a big knife in the stomach of the movement in an attempt to be helpful. And it also was right around the time that I was facing those doubts surrounding my book. So I can't say that it wasn't personally. I can't say I was purely crying for everyone else because it was a it just felt like a painful moment where every that plus doubt around Cosby survivors plus what I was personally experiencing. It just it just it's like all came together. Yeah. In a really negative way. And I was sort of just sitting there like feeling so enraged and powerless. And I understand that, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. I'm sure Sabrina Rubin Erdely wanted to tell a story that would really bring attention to this issue. Unfortunately, it was deeply irresponsible reporting. Yeah. So if you had to do the book over again, other than like obvious, like just be a little more like, would you even write that book that way now? Like what, yeah. once you saw what the, was it, is it fun for you that you wrote it now or do you feel yeah. good about it? How do you feel? I have all these like awesome, obviously I would do like, I've learned a lot about what it means to like legally check a book. And yeah. I think that, you know, it's funny when I, I'm, you know, not laying blame on anyone. I'm just saying I would do a, uh, I would obviously be sensitive to the fact that there's when I'm writing a story like that, I have to be extra, extra careful because there's a lot of attention on what I'm putting out into the world. Um, that being said, so many awesome people, women, have talked to me about the book and not just those chapters. Because you went on the big book tour and stuff. Yeah, so it was you the had most people. fun I ever had. My sister and I got to go across the country meeting like rad girls. Like every single one of them had like pink hair and like a cool sweatshirt. And I was like, I would be friends with any of you in a heartbeat. We got to bring Planned Parenthood with us. I had Emily's List with me. I had like this, it felt like this big festival, like women and arts and politics. Like, How many people did you have at book tours? Like, what what was the range? It ranged. I think my biggest night was 3,000 in San Francisco. Wow. Because you were renting out theaters and making it like kind of a night. Yeah. We were trying to make it like a thing. Like the idea of just going across the country, like signing signing people's books books and being like, so nice to meet you, just felt like. I couldn't do something that was so um, promotional. So what we tried to do was make it a night that would – like we had local talent opening and interesting people interviewing me. And we tried to make it a night that would actually really engage people rather than – a night that would actually really engage people rather than like sort of, you know, just feel like a promotional tool to sell more books. And we had – so much fun planning it. It wasn't like we had a big th- – it was literally just Grace, my sister, and me like sitting there and debating like, will this be fun? Is this a cool way? We had like a banner that said like Lena Hart's Planned Parenthood that one of my favorite like Etsy sellers, this girl Fun Cult who makes like sparkly banners, yeah. made us at Fun Cult. She's awesome. She made us this amazing banner. We had like super cute Planned Parenthood volunteers and like little like Lena Hart's Planned Parenthood t-shirts giving out condoms in these little bags like – it literally, the first concert I ever went to was Lilith Fair. And in some ways, I feel like I've always been just like chasing my Lilith Fair chasing experience. Lilith Fair forever. I went the first year. <laughs> wow, the best one. Mm-hmm, in Farmington, Connecticut. And I got to see Fiona Apple, Tracy Chapman, Indigo Girls. I was going to say, if you didn't mention the Indigo Girls, I was going to get Oh, upset. yeah. Closer to fine. They're the Rolling Stones of Lilith Fair. <laughs> it's so true. <laughs> They're the real big act. They've been at it for a long time. Oh, yeah. Paula Cole. I don't know if you remember her. Of course I do. And what I was it? What was it? Yeah. What show is it? Dawson's that? Creek. Yeah, yeah. Song. Got it. So in some way, I was like, I just want to get Lilith Fair back. And I felt like there were moments where we got Lilith Fair back. Lilith Fair was pre-internet, basically. Yeah. I, I got to go. It received a little differently. Lilith Fair 20th anniversary might be 
the reason I got to go to Lilith Fair, which was pretty exciting, was that I was going to theater camp at the time with – I'm about to drop some names on you. I went yeah. to the same theater camp as both Gummer sisters, Mamie and Grace, and Lily Rabe. So a lot of my theater camp friends are currently working in Los Angeles. Wow. So we went to a camp called Impact where we were doing a production of Midsummer Night's Dream in which I played Puck, and which is an asexual role. Mm. And um, like – Mamie and Grace and Lily were like, we're going to Lilith Fair. And I was like, oh, yeah, me too. Like, I just 100% How old are you, lied. like eight? Nine, ten. Nine? Yeah. Lied. Then I went home and I was like, Mom, what is Lilith Fair? I said I was going. And maybe the right parenting thing would have been to be like, you have to go back and say you lied. But my mom, bless her soul, managed to get tickets to Lilith Fair. And I have this amazing picture that's my sister in like, like hemp overalls me in like this like laura ashley dress and my mom just sitting there like in jeans and a t-shirt like in freaking hell on a eating churros on a blanket watching paula cole were there any men at lilith fair was there one man like there was like probably like one man who was like selling rope sandals and i remember being shocked like seeing all this armpit hair and like i was like i came from pretty liberal place and i was like there was this armpit hair on women and it was like the most shocking vulgar thing i had ever seen in my life yeah. I sense him used to I still to it. feel that way. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> I started growing my armpit hair briefly in high school because I had a different camp counselor who did it. And then I like it was like two months and I was like, I should probably stop. I don't have enough armpit hair for it to look cool. I have like yeah. four strands. You don't want to be halfway through, halfway there with armpit no, hair. No, you can't. I have literally four strands of armpit hair. It's not a good look. So I, I couldn't help but notice with your book, you uh, – oh, wait. One last book tour question. Oh, Yeah. Um, what was the male female ratio and did, did men hit on you and give you numbers and were you asked out and did anyone make you pause and say, Hmm, that's a great question. Thank you. Never asked out. Never asked out on your book tour. I'm very public about the fact that I'm in a long-term relationship. Like Jack and I are basically like lesbians in the fact that we're like, have been publicly coupled for a long time and like are really into our dog. So you're like Ellen and Portia de Rossi. Literally, we're like more like literally we're Ellen and Portia de Rossi. We're <laughs> you cut your hair the same way. Whoever we're with yeah. now, like he, like we, I was wearing his clothes all morning today. Like mm. we're just, we're deep in that world. So I think me, and also a lot of my book is like a, Jack's so I wouldn't there. trust Jack because he's in two bands. That means he could have two girlfriends. It's so funny. We've been Be careful watching a with lot that of guy. love in hip hop Hollywood, and it's all about like guys going on tour and like like messing with girls on the side. And I looked at him and I was like, it had never occurred to me that this was even like possible. I was like, do you have <laughs> girls on the side? And he was like, side I, pieces. Yeah, do you have side pieces? And he was like, I call you like forty five times a day. Yeah. When would I have time for a side piece? We're on a twenty four hour Skype together. Yeah, exactly. Like we're texting twenty four seven. So either he's like. And texting at the same time, or or he's, I mean, or he's looping it like the bus and speed, where it's yeah. like some video that already happened. Totally. I see. I think he would be if I were him. I'd be more jealous of you. I could never have dated an actress. Really? I could never have done it. You mean because the, of the sex scenes and stuff like that? Yeah. Like I was Allison Williams's boyfriend last night during the uh, that scene. But but rest. I don't. I don't come back from that. I just move out. I don't even break up. I'm just like, I don't live here anymore. Jack is so... Well, firstly, I already did it when we met. So he kind of knew it was like part of... He had like seen my like... He'd signed up for it. He kind of signed up for it. Although well, I have to say, this season, I didn't do very many sex scenes. And I can't say he was like bummed about it. Like, it's not his favorite thing when I come home and I'm like, oh, he spent the whole day naked with someone's face between my legs. Like, that's not his dream. But he also really recognizes 
that that is art. Although one time someone wrote a music video treatment where he was supposed to kiss someone else. And I was like, no. And he was like, how's it different? And I was like, because it's my job and you'd just be doing it randomly. And he was like, that's true. It's that's, a good, that's a good word. I was like, I was like, I do it all the time. So I know how to compartmentalize it. But you might not know. And so I don't think you should kiss. And he ended up not going with a music video treatment. But I don't think he thought my argument was that good. This sounds like every argument I've ever had with my wife. And she <laughs> like, always wins, too. I was it's also kind of like, like half truth and half insane, but somehow she talks me into it anyway. I was also like, I kiss weirdos and you'd be kissing a model. It's different. Right. And like Adam Driver's very handsome, but it's different than like kissing a video vixen. Well, plus he doesn't watch the show. So no, Adam Driver's never seen the show. He's never seen the show. That's about the greatest thing I learned in 2014 was that Adam Driver has never actually watched an episode of Girls. And then I tried to bargain with him and be like, I'll watch Star Wars if you watch Girls because I've never seen any of the Star Wars movies. And he was like, and he and he was like, I don't care if you see Star Wars. Yeah, I'm not seeing Star Wars either. That's yeah. not worth it. <laughs> it's not important. I don't want to watch anything I do. I know. It, he walks out before the premiere, and then his but his wife watches That's it. So weird. His wife watches it. What is his like, reason for that? I think he feels like it'll. I mean, he'd be able to tell you better than me, but I think he just feels like it'll like disrupt his process to have a vision of his own work in his head, and that he needs to just like be the character and not add that meta level of watching tell- the character. Tell the story of when you found out that he didn't watch the show. Well, here's what I'll say. We watched the pilot together. We had just shot the pilot, and I invited him over to watch it. He sits, watches it, walks out basically afterwards, and I don't hear from him for like three days. And I'm like, Jenny, Judd, I think he quit. Like, I, I, there's an, And then he texts me, and he's like, the pilot was cool. And then he's just— That's it. Never watched again. And I think he had made it clear to me that he just wasn't— pl- Planning to no, you, I thought you told me that there were. You mentioned some plot in the show, oh, oh, oh. and he had like kind of. You could tell he had no Two idea we were talking about. I told him something that was happening in the show, and he had no clue. I introduced him to an actor who That's had a different storyline. Yeah, I was like, I introduced him to James Legrow, who had a storyline that he never interacted with, and I was like, "This is James. He's on Girls." And Adam was like, "Oh, cool," but it was like it became clear to me that this character who had appeared in. Eight episodes of our first season was completely. I mean, maybe he'd seen it. It was at like a they worked at two different Starbucks in different parts of California. Exactly, and had no clue who the yeah. other one was. Like it was amazing to me. Or it was someone like it was either James or someone else first season. But I realized, oh, Adam has no conception who that person is because they've been in totally different storylines. And Adam couldn't be more polite. He's a complete delight, but he just happens to not know. I mean, he reads the scripts. Well, that's good. And then I asked that's him if he bonus. wanted to watch an episode that he wasn't in just to see what the show was like. And he seemed open to that, but I'm not sure it happened. But I was like, watch a different episode just so you know like that it what it looks like. Is it weird that he's going to be super famous soon? Like really, really famous? I mean. When does that Star Wars movie come out? Next summer, I think. So yeah. he's going to be like his whole life changes. He goes outside and everybody knows who he is. I mean. I'm so proud of him just because I he's such a talented actor and he's such a hard yeah. worker and he brings like, you know, you could stick him in like a McDonald's commercial and he would bring full method. He's just really – that was kind of part of the joke of in our first episode. We had him in a um, depression commercial. Yeah, yeah, that was funny. And I was kind of trying to imagine like what would Adam Driver do in a commercial and I was like give it his all. Like he's – he has this incredible work ethic. Um, he's a very modest and humble person. I hope that – the attention isn't overwhelming for him and doesn't seem like he's the kind of guy who would love being no i don't think he loves super I mean, he's, duper famous like he's that. super polite to everybody like it's yeah. not like you're gonna go up to him and he's gonna be like 
God, he's not like right. kind of like Joaquin Phoenix it or whatever. That's yeah. just someone who I imagine would like I'm play like a weird prank on you. Yeah. You're polite to everybody. No, I'm, I, You're I'll like Joaquin Phoenix. Yeah. You say fuck off. No. No, he's not going to do that. But I know that being nice to everyone who comes up to you can sometimes be draining. And so I just hope he has like good ways to protect himself. And what's nice about working on girls is like everyone's life has changed a lot since we started. But when we come back to set, it's the same dynamic. So it's like we're all super safe with each other. So right. whatever's happened in anyone's life since the beginning of the show, it doesn't really matter when we're back on set because we're just kind of in our little I'm going to say huddle. I'm going to use a um, sports term because we're in here and say Your locker room. Your locker room. Yeah. Locker room would be better. Mm -hmm. But you had to share him with George Lucas, which was kind of cool. And J.J. Abrams. Yeah. That's cool that you ran a show that you got to share someone that worked for you with George Lucas. I felt cool about it. I felt really cool about it. Put that on the resume. And then I met Lawrence Kasdan, who's one of my favorite filmmakers, and was like, Adam's great in Star Wars. And I was like, how do you know? And he was like, because I wrote it and wrote another Star Wars. And I was like, whoops. Like, I have a really clear sense of his filmography. I'm a huge fan of all of Lawrence Kasdan's movies. And then just had this, like, horrible hole in my brain when it came to Star Wars. He has two different types of fans, though. We were together, actually, when that happened. Two people like us, but then he's got the whole Star Wars, Raiders of the Lost Ark side. Psychos. That know him from that. But Where to I'm me, like, he's a big chill guy. I mean, dead yeah. first, foremost, right there, and then also discovered Kathleen Turner. Well, I'm the one who's like, let's talk about Grand Canyon. And right. Then, and then there's the people who are like, can you please reveal to me? And people keep asking me for Star Wars spoilers, and I want to just be like, not only do I not know... I wouldn't even understand if Adam told me anything. I don't know. Is it, is it in the future, in the past? I don't even know. It's a, I was always out on Star Wars. I never cared. I don't care. But I saw I the mean, first three. I care about, and I love JJ's work, and yeah. I love Adam, and Lupita's in it, who's obviously like the most magical living creature. She's hot. She's another one I'd want to stare at for 10 minutes. She, she's beautiful. I saw her at the Globes last night. She's beautiful. Like, not even human. She's so beautiful. She's so beautiful. I saw her at the Globes, and, like, I feel like I'm always forcing myself on her in a social way that's like, we should hang. Like, just New York girls, just hang. Like, I'm almost like this, like, incredibly oppressive, like, seventh grade wannabe friend to Lupita, and she's very nice about it. But I'm like, we should grab a coffee or just shop or, like, get croissants. I'm interested to see what her where her career goes. And well, what, like, what the next, like, four movies she makes is. Because there's hope, almost, like, no precedent for her. Well, I just hope the industry steps up and gives her the kinds of roles that she deserves. I mean, she optioned with Plan B, that movie, this book, Americana, by Chimamanda um, Ngozi Adichie. I believe I uh, pronounced that correctly. Um, Isn't the worst case scenario for her, like, two years from now, she's in some rom-com with some 31-year-old celebrity who can't get married and Lupita Nyong'o's the best friend and they're having coffee talking about men. Like, I don't want that. I want her to like, I don't star in movies. Happen for her. I think we're in a really, I think we're on Good. the upswing. I really believe. And also she's so freaking talented that she's going to inspire people. Not that other people, it's a combination of we're in a moment where I actually was just talking to um, Carrie Washington and I was saying to her, like, I don't know if you know what you being on Carrie television She's so beautiful and talented. And I was like, you being on television means so much and has and like people need to get their brains opened wide. And the fact is, like, I think that Lupita winning the Oscar, which was incredibly deserved, is a helpful reminder to people that um, that little baby stuff. Yeah. It's like also it's like people need to see themselves reflected back as fully formed characters on 
television and in film. Like, that's why I was so excited when Gina Rodriguez won for Jane the Virgin last night. Firstly, I love Jane the Virgin. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I must be too old now because I, I kind of knew what it was but didn't know it was like you could win a Golden Globe for – well, I have to say it's like a little femier than probably if a little femier, a little younger than what you might be into. But like, I bet your daughter would love it. And I except maybe she doesn't understand the concept of virginity at this point. I sure hope that. <laughs> well, I love it. And my boyfriend and I watch it together. And Gina said this beautiful thing when she got up. She it was, was great like, speech. This is a people who want to see themselves not just as sidekicks, but heroes. And like, that's what this show does. And it's just an important vehicle, and I feel like we're seeing more and more of that. Even just the fact that, like, last night at the Globes, four out of five of the shows nominated for Best Comedy have female showrunners. And, like, you know, many of them are representing groups of people who are historically represent underrepresented on TV. Orange is the New Black, Transparent. So you're watching all these, but you didn't watch The Affair. I did watch The Affair. You did watch The Affair. I watched The Affair. I was surprised that it won. I like the affair. I'll defend the affair, but it was. I, I think they just like to vote for new shows in the Golden Globes. Well, I think you know, they gravitate I'm an HBO toward girl, it. so I got to keep it. I got to keep it on my. Um, oh, this I gotta is keep interesting. It on my home turf. It's like a Crips and Bloods thing. Yeah, very much so. I'm gonna say it's more like a Sharks and Jets thing. Sharks and Jets thing, fine. And um, it's like a Yankees Red Sox thing. But you know, I feel very. I feel. I never thought I would say this, but I feel very committed to my corporation. That being said. Um, I think Ruth Wilson and Dominic West are both great actors, and I find the show um, arousing. <laughs> I was—I thought you were going to use another word. I didn't expect I that. Do one. it's so much sex. I'm like ah, like, and I can. Plus, I make a show that's all gross sex. So to watch the show that's like everyone like touching each other, like all ex- everyone seems so excited to be touching each other. It's alien to me. I went to Amy and Tina's party last night, and I saw McNulty was there. Well, I, I, I still call him McNulty. McNulty. You just change your name. You're not Dominic West. You're McNulty. Is that I saw McNulty at Jemima's family Christmas party when I was 15. Mm. And I remember watching him dance and being like, that's a real man. Like, I didn't know. I was like, you didn't 15. know he'd be McNulty slash. No, I recognized guy. him from that movie 28 Days, where in well, which good Sandra in Bullock He's has really to go good to rehab. Movie. Yeah. And so I was like, oh my God, it's the guy from 28 Days. And I saw him dancing and I was like, and so since then, like The Wire, The Affair, yeah. what he is to me is the guy from Jemima's Christmas Party. I ride with McNulty, but I saw him at this party, and then I'm thinking, like, if that girl from The Affair is there, that, how funny would it be for to have an affair with the girl from The Affair? Like, you have The Affair? Yeah, I was thinking, like, I just had, you know, I was like three seconds. I was like, how weird would this be if I was talking to the girl from The Affair, and my wife was looking for me, and she was like, what the hell, why are you talking to her? Like, she was the actual woman. <laughs> talking to my friends Peter and Barbara and they were like it's not a good one to watch with your significant other like for weeks I watched it right after I'm going to dispel a myth here which is people thought I canceled two of my book tour appearances because I was so upset about um, about you know the rumors surrounding my book. When it was actually, the affair. It was the affair. I had to watch the affair. No I had to get my appendix out. Oh. And after I got my appendix out all doped up I Binge watched watch. the first seven episodes of the affair and I was with Jack and so the combination of the paranoia of painkillers and the affair, I was just like, suddenly this whole world of possibilities of him cheating on me opened up. And I was like, are you falling out of love with me? I remember saying to him, are you like a car that's just slowly backing out of the parking lot? And he was like, I need you to either get off drugs or stop watching this show. Oh, we have to show. stop watching this show. Because it's too much. You know what my move is with the affair? I think I what? told you this. I just make jokes the whole time. 
Because it could go the other way to go is you just yeah. sit there in silence and then pretend it never happened. And, and that's when I think the wheels start turning on both ends. Yeah. But I think I turn it into the kind of a comedy show and I, I call him McNulty and yeah. he, like he's the worst dad and the worst husband ever. So I play that up and their daughter is like your worst case scenario you've ever had for a daughter. I know, and she's hot, hot, hot. Very attractive. But if my daughter turns out like her, um, I, I wouldn't be. Yeah, probably. I probably would. I really understand. But um, I'm hoping that I can prevent my daughter. Like, I have real fear because I really want a daughter. But I'm also just like, what if my daughter literally is like Phyllis Shafley? Like, what if she literally is like against everything that I stand for and thinks I'm such a freak and a loser? And she hears about things I did in the past and is mortified and disgusted. And then she goes to like, she goes to like UVA and joins a sorority. She's like, just, just against you from day one. Yeah, I'm scared. It's possible. But you never know with moms and daughters. Really don't. I basically just tried to be exactly like my mom. I'm like basically wearing an outfit modeled off to her. Like I just want to. You just re- you replicated yourself in her image. Yeah, but she's like six inches taller and twenty pounds lighter than me. So. What'd you do differently about season four of Girls versus season three? You get you you weren't see out of the first three seasons. It seems like you have. Is it fair to say the most regrets about season three, or like the, that would be the one you would do the most things over, or what? Well, regrets a hard word for me. I'm not that into it. However, what I will say is that season three there were a few challenges. We uh, Chris Abbott, who played Charlie, um, mm-hmm. ended up kind of leaving the show, and there's you know there's no issue there but he ended up leaving the show fairly close to the start so i think well that had to be a tiny bit of an issue there well <laughs> well I, we were, left the show and it couldn't have been yeah, like hey guys know, he's my buddy but like yeah, it okay. was not but you know it was like a it was like a game change and bad time it was my first time as a showrunner not jenny and judd's first time because they've been through a lot more than me having to really rethink something on the fly yeah and that wasn't the most comfortable thing in the world um, I was there. You should. I could have come in. I could have. We would have loved. Could have been in. What if we just like done a full like Susan Lucci replace? <laughs> I'm such a bad actor. I bet you're great. No, it would have been bad. But probably like I mean we could have just like kind of shot you from behind a lot. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. We could have just kind of stayed on your back and ADR'd most of your lines. <laughs> just me typing. And then I think, you know, I'm really – we did 12 episodes season three, which really actually like te- – I know this sounds crazy to someone who does like 22 episodes network style, but it really tested my stamina. Usually you were 10, right? Yeah, and just those last two. was a lot. Well, the fact – Because your like, shows are dense. It's not like you're cranking out, I don't know, 90210. They're dense and also Jenny and I are on set like 18 hours a day. I mean we're always there. If we're not – if I'm not acting, we're writing. I'm often directing. We're always in meetings. So it's like – just that extra month of production yeah. and that extra kind of those that extra and you're working on a book and i was working on a book and i was trying to have a human life and it sounds like you did were doing a lot yeah it was it was a lot but i'm really proud of a lot of the stuff that we tackled yeah. i'm always proud of the cast and our performances that being said season 4 came a bit more easily and i Good. think it's because we came into it with a very very clear sense of the story we wanted to tell all our characters were in very defined transitional moments and it just kind of flowed. And like, you know, those moments where you're in your work and you're struggling versus you're in your work and it's just kind of like, you're like, oh, I'm kind of like grooving here. And it was just, everything came together in a really beautiful way season four. And I also think like, this first three seasons of a show, you test a lot of different tonal stuff. You're like, how much satire of Brooklyn do we want to do? How dark can we go? How And like, I felt season four, a lot of, I don't regret anything we've done. And Jenny and I always say, like, you know, our show's not 
plot isn't our <laughs> plot isn't our main talent or our main focus. It's yeah. and but we I feel like a lot of things that we had been playing with came into clear focus in season four and that was an exciting feeling to hit a groove like that. And we had like amazing guest stars and our cast came back really well. Just kind of ripped off Anthony Edwards just shows up in the first one. Isn't that awesome? Anthony Edwards was like, he should just be on an island somewhere. He's didn't he make like a kajillion dollars from ER? Probably. I mean, he doesn't I act when like those people it. Still act. What's so cool is like he's so chill. Like he shows up to set and is like, yeah, I I don't need a stand in. Like I'll just block the scene. Like he's the most lovely, relaxed man in the world. So did you think about putting him in a Top Gun jacket or no? You know, I've never seen Top Gun. Oh, that's terrible. I know. I'm embarrassed. You would love and it. And everyone was like. It's the most homoerotic movie of the 80s. You you would love it. Nobody would love it more than you. To me, is the sexiest thing in the entire you would world. Love, there's a whole volleyball scene that's, like that's the, basically like male foreplay. Basically, like my, I could write a thesis on like True Detective as like homoerotic. Um, that's and interesting, too. I loved every, every moment in True Detective where it seemed like they were so mad at each other they were going to French was like, I really got off on that. Did Does Jack get jealous of Jenny? Because it seems like you spend more time with, with Jenny, who's. Runs a show with you than Such anyone an on the earth, right? Question. I would get jealous of Jenny. Okay. Jack said to me, count how many times a day you text with Jenny. And I said, it's not that much. Get it together. And he goes, because I delete my texts. Yeah. So, Smart. And so he was like, save your text with Jenny for a day. Count them. I made her do it. This was a slow day for us, and we had texted 162 times. So we have a very involved relationship. Yeah, that's interesting. Because we're best friends and we're work partners. What happens if you guys get in a tiff? We don't really you don't fight. Get I have to say, I once said to someone, I was like, we don't fight. We just cry together twice a year. Oh. We agree an almost freaky percentage of the time. And when we disagree, it's a constructive conversation, which if someone else were saying that, I'd be like, that's bullshit. But we really connect. We love this we very rarely disagree about something we're watching. We very dis- rarely disagree about something on set. We just have a very compatible aesthetic and we have a very compatible – we're not the same, but our emotional um, Sometimes you have friends like that. I've never – I've known my buddy House since 1988. House, We've never had an argument. It's the best. We've never had an argument with House. 27 years. When I met Jenny, my mom said, it's so great you finally have a friend. <laughs> She was like, I was like 24. And she was like, congratulations. Jenny gave you my favorite part of your book. Oh, Sunshine Stealers. Sunshine Stealers was could have, almost could have been a book. Jen, you know, I like that I you initially... gave her credit, though, because you could have just stolen it. And then she would have been like, you didn't tell me that, Jenny. And you could have done that whole thing. I feel like it was we all good. have enough intellectual property. Why would we ever take it from anybody You should always else? credit your friends. I think you need to credit your always. friends. Also, then it proves you have friends. Right. That's but, true. It's so validating. But um, <laughs> I actually thought about calling the book. I didn't them but they yelled at me but that's your next book that's my next that's my book when i made See, what i loved about this first book for you was how it set up the second book because you didn't really waste any industry stories at all and you still have all you 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 saved 99 percent of them i have so i'm not all your show running stories all your I've hbo movies yeah stories just like so many that's gonna be the best just, like freaky ass behavior Mostly on the part of men between 50 and 70. Well, you, you teased it, though. You, you just ran quotes, but you didn't attribute them to celebrities, of th- offensive things celebrities have said to you. Christian were- Gillibrand. Everyone was like, Christian Gillibrand, name those senators. And people were like, Lena Dunham, name those directors. And we were like, no, we're going to take the classy hmm. route. Wait. I just don't see any reason. It's like it's not about who did it. It's about the fact that it's happening. It's nice to have in your back pocket. And it's funny. I had this feeling where I was like, I hope they know who they are. And then I realized that. 
those types of guys are so self-involved, they'll never see them. Probably they won't read the book, A. But B, they'll never see themselves in my representation of them because that's what it means to be an aging male narcissist is you're never, ever going to be able to recognize your own behavior Mm. unless you're Philip Roth. Interesting. I like what you did there. Wait, explain what shuns... Explain what sunshine stealing is to people who don't know what that is, because well, I thought I was really smart. Thank you. And you're not a sunshine stealer, by the way. You should know I'm you're not. the... I have my own sunshine. You have your own sunshine. sunshine. You've got, like, your great life. Like, talking to you replenishes me rather than oh. drains me. Oh, I appreciate I'm like vitamin C. Yeah, you mm. are. You really are. But explain sunshine stealing. So I hope I define it properly, especially because it was just term. I'll help you, because I just read it. But basically, it was like the idea that there are certain men who... Uh, Does it have to be men? Why can't it be both sexes? I guess it could be women, but in this context, I'm dealing with 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 women. It feels like a different dynamic. Like men. Oh, maybe it's on, a maybe it's a spinoff. Theory. Maybe it's a spinoff thing. Like I remember. Do you remember that episode of Thirty Rock? Moon, with Tina full Fey? moon stealing. Yeah, full moon stealing. Do you remember when when Tina Fey like meets her idol in the form of Carrie Fisher, like an older comedy writer, and she turns out to be like a freaking nightmare. I don't, but it's a great episode. And I feel like that is a very valid depiction of a certain kind of like relationship you can have with an older woman who you admire. But in terms of Sunshine Stealer, the definition that Jenny and I came up with was like an older man who wants to engage with you on a level that's not necessarily sexual, but is like dominant, controlling and involves them being like, I want to protect you. I have a lot I want to teach you. But what it actually is, is like sucking the joy and creativity from you in an effort to remain youthful themselves. Creatively, you're filling some sort of void for them. Exactly. You think it's like, I'm going to be your mentor, but really they're just. Yeah, they feel a lack of relevance. And so they're trying to suck what they can from you. And like. What but I Judd want. Apatow's not like that. Oh, no, Judd Apatow. Right. Here's what I'll say that's the biggest That's why you that like Judd Apatow. I love him. He's my bestest friend. Right. I always call him my work um, brother, husband, son. Right. But my work brother, husband, son, Judd Apatow is great. And what I can say that's the biggest compliment in the world is I basically feel genderless around Judd Apatow. Like, I don't even feel like I have a vagina in his presence. Like, it's in his world, it's all about, like, is the idea good? And he doesn't really care who it comes from. That would be a good quote if you wrote a book. That could be your blurb. I don't feel. Like I don't I, even feel like I have a vagina in his presence, Lena Dunham. Yeah, they well, put it I, on the back of the book. I don't, and it's the best. And he's also like such a great dad and such a great husband, and he's got just like respect for women, which is part of why he's gone so hard at this Bill Cosby thing. Is because the idea of women being unheard makes him bonkers, which is why it makes me so crazy when people are like, "Jed Apatow's movies are." I'm misogynistic. And I'm like, why don't you look for misogyny where it actually exists and not um, in the films of a guy who's written really interesting female characters? So you feel like Hollywood has a lot of people who are just kind of waltzing around looking to steal some sunshine from up and coming people who have some good ideas or a little creative light or whatever. In college, my friend Miranda made this thing called the misogyny list, which was a list which was supposed to be like a uh, a list of all our campus misogynists ranked. And at Oberlin, it's a big deal to be called a misogynist. You don't want that to happen to you. So I could make a list of Hollywood sunshine stealers and distribute it to women entering the business, but I won't do that yet. That'll be the seventh book. That'll be the seventh. And you won't be on it. Well, I used to be a and chauvinist, but then I had a daughter. Do you think you were a chauvinist Definitely. when you had a daughter? Yeah. What form do you think it took? I think, well, I had this whole thing about how sports fans, I liked it was like our last male thing. You like that it was leave like us alone. Why do you have place? to watch football with us? Like why? Like just this is our thing. Get Can out of here, Cameron Diaz, with your cool attitude. Yeah, 
And but then when I had my daughter, I was like, wow, my daughter like totally changed my outlook on just about like all male female thing things. To hear. Yeah. Well, what I like is like the thing that is true is like I really like men. I need to be around them. They make me laugh and they make me happy, and I need that balance of male and female and you know gender queer energy in my life. But I and I also think that men's positions can really change over time based on what they're exposed to and what they're open to. And so the idea that, like, you know, once a chauvinist, always a chauvinist is not true. Like, there's a lot of people who are reformed. And I'm sure you weren't sh- – No, I'm, I'm probably being too hard on myself. But You were probably, I, like – you understood the difference between right and wrong. You were just defending what you felt like well, was I your see, male term. Also, like, it was my column and you play certain I'm, – I'm the sports guy and I like hanging out. Yeah, playing you know, attitude and – But now um, – you know, I, I think it only takes a couple of things to nudge people in different directions. This might make you laugh. When I was a kid, I thought it was chauvinist, and I thought it was people who shoved Sho- women over. Chauvinist. I thought, like, oh, there's guys who go around shoving women over. <laughs> they chauvinists. And they're such bad chauvinists. Are there female chauvinists or no? Yeah. Well, my friend Ariel Levy wrote a book called Female Chauvinist Pigs, which was about sort of, like, misogyny, women-on-women hate crimes, basically, and just, like, like— and she's a very smart person, Ariel. And, was it called the sixth grade? I know. Seriously. I mean, I think there's pl- a lot of the internet vitriol I get. It comes from women. And it would be easy for me to go, oh, but these women have been pressured from the men in their lives to feel certain ways. But that would be me denying agency to other women. And that it runs counter to everything I believe in. So at the end of the day, I have to believe that those women are espousing their own beliefs. And that's I used to go, oh, when women write me a note saying, like, you're a fat pig, put your tits away. I'd go like, well, they're internalizing a male dialogue that exists around them. And it's not their fault. It's not they're their the proxy. Fault. But for me to say that is for me to deny women their ability to think independently. So I have to acknowledge that there are women who feel that way. And therefore, I'm having misogynistic comments directed at me by women. We have to go because somebody's knocking at the door, which usually means we have to go. I hope this wasn't too heavy. I hope you feel like I kept it. Usually you and I and you talk. You know what? Here's the thing about the podcast. I like when they're each one's different. Yeah. I don't. Last one we just like talked about. Last one was like all pop like, culture and stupid stuff. And, and so it's almost like a movie series. And then the next one will be maybe the whole time we just talk about like 90s movies. And you talk about how. You went up to Josh Charles and you said how you loved him in Threesome and he was and confused. he was like confused but also like maybe excited. Did you like the movie uh, Three of Hearts? That was another one from that era. Well, who was in Three of Hearts? That was the one with one of the Baldwins with Kelly Lynch. Yeah, Kelly obviously. Lynch and um, Sherilyn Fenn and they had the Stink song in the middle. Obviously, I loved that movie. That was a good one. But and who was I might have out of seeing that in the Charles, theater on a Lara date. Flynn Boyle. Yeah, th- I thought Threesome was the inver- inferior. I think it was, who was Three of Hearts. Who was the third guy in Threesome though? I don't know. I thought it was a Baldwin. Might have been. The Baldwins were just everywhere. I know. My mom was on an episode of Gossip Girl. Don't clap too loudly. And uh, we met Stephen Baldwin. He was in the dressing room next to her. And he basically just like told me like, like, I don't even remember. He just like talked about politics like at me for like 20 minutes. And I loved every second of it. And then I talked about his conservative politics at me for like 20 minutes. And then that was it. The one thing that didn't happen from our last podcast is you didn't get on – Scandal, but then you got on Scandal on SNL. I got on Scandal on SNL. You you weren't on the real Scandal though, so I don't know if it's better or worse that you were on SNL. My energy towards Shonda and trying to manifest that. I'm trying to manifest three shows. You can't be on one of the shows. 
Scandal's the one to be on. One of the shows. Scandal's the one where you have to be like, like somebody's dead in your apartment. Yeah, I'd love it. I'd love every second. You're on the run, and I'd love every second. But it was fun being SNL scandal. That was the best. That was the only sketch I pitched when I went. Oh, really? Yeah, that was the only sketch I. Everything else they came to me with. That was the only sketch I had like in quotes a writing credit on. Um, Sarah and Chris, who wrote it with me, were also crazy scandal head fans, and. I basically, they got it immediately. I was like a dumb girl who's one of the, a dumb new gladiator. And they were like on it. And we uh, had so done. much fun. And also it was really fun because it was the first kind of like Sashir Zameda had just come to the show and she's yeah. such a good comedian. And that was kind of her first like leading lady role. Right. And she just knocked she did, it out of the park. She did. she did all the like, she did all the lip action, which by the way, I think Carrie's an amazing actor, but every actor has like sort of like go-to ticks you could make. I mean, every one of them. Well, someone did an impression of me on SNL and it was all them being like, right. And I totally, only rarely does it actually ruin the character for the people that know that. Like, yeah. And one of those was when Anne Hathaway did Claire Danes in Homeland. And it actually like hurt how I watched the character. I didn't that think that out. was a nice impression. Was, I like Anne Hathaway and Claire is a really good friend of mine. It was but, too, it was almost too far, but I was like, God, it was a great on. impression. Also, Claire is, the best crier in history. I mean, ever since Romeo and She's Juliet, got multiple cry moves. I give her the and the award for best crying goes to Claire Danes. Today, yesterday. She's crying right now. She we're just talking about her. She's so beautiful. She's also like the smartest I'll person you've under, ever met. Underrated crier. Who? Uh, my man Tom Cruise. Really? Oh yeah. God. He does a Oh yeah, you're right. And Jerry McGuire, he's, he's like, oh, oh, oh. He he does he fights it off, but the tears come. I like yeah. I like Tom Cruise when he's crying. I like Tom Cruise when he's running. Do you like him when he's laughing? I like when he's over laughing. <laughs> I like when he gets upset. And Tom Cruise is back, man. Edge of Tomorrow was huge. Was it really? We're, this, we're in decade four of the Cruise era. I don't know anything about it. Like if if you could not tell me if you were like what was the most popular at the box office this year, I'd be like Whiplash, starring J.K. Simmons. Like I don't know what. Another, another Simmons. He's great. Yeah, and he's great. I met him on Jimmy Fallon last week. We played Pictionary, and I whooped his ass so hard, and it was not a joke. Like I've never won anything in my him. life, and uh, uh, Steve Higgins and I destroyed Jimmy and J.K. in Pictionary, and I have never been prouder. I wanted SNL to do a, a mash of Oz and Whiplash, where it's Schillinger, the Oz prison rapist, as the drum teacher. That felt like would have been the easiest SNL parody ever. That's amazing, except I feel like the Oz audience like might not be tuning. I feel like they probably not. I don't know if it's a huge Oz, Oz audience, is, but my that dad's been in the in Oz audience. Real, oh, I love that. My friend Michael Doyle had to lie face down with blood on his butt. He played like the little rich, pretty rich boy. On oh Oz. boy. And he told me an amazing story about getting like more blood dabbed on his butt. Oh, for post what? Yeah, yeah, because he Oz was amazing. Oz, Oz and ER could come back tomorrow with new cast. I'd be in. My um, my friend Peter Benedek, who um is uh a big, in the control room right now. In the control room right now. I'll yeah. reveal instrumental in bringing that show to television. Instrumental in f- f- creating cable as we know it. Today. We're ready for Oz two. I'm ready for Oz two You are. I am. Let's do it. I'm ready for Oz. Oh, I also promised my Teamster captain, Captain Eddie Yacobelli Jr., that I'd give him a shout out because he's such a big Bill Simmons fan. Oh, thanks, Eddie. And you're the person who basically gave me credit with the Teamster community because they were like, I got called into Eddie's office. He was like, hey. And I was like so scared. I'd like violated a union rule or something. And he's like, we want Bill Simmons? And yeah. I was like, yeah. And he was like, he cool? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> and now Eddie and I are best friends. Shout out to Eddie. Yeah, Eddie. So you're not working on too many things right now? 
I think you're in a good place. I'm in a good place. I'm yeah. working. You get married on... soon, or any no. kids, or nothing? Maybe some kids. Okay, maybe kids. We're thinking about. We're. Th- I mean, I'm thinking about some kids. <laughs> you can ask my kids. boyfriend if he's thinking about them. All right. But no, we don't have any getting married plans. We have a house. We're really into our house. You optioned a couple movies that you're kind of working on secretly. I'm working on some secret movies. Um, Jenny and I have a production company. We have a documentary that we produced. Our first thing as our company, Casual Romance, is coming out um, in March on HBO. It's called It's Me, Hillary, A Portrait of Hillary Knight. Mm. Me, It's me, Hillary, the man who drew Eloise. And it is a portrait of Hillary Knight, the man who drew Eloise. And you're doing our 30 for 30 about Lilith, Lilith Fair? Right, 30 for 30. Our first non-sports 30 That's for 30. No, just, I told you I want to do the Steffi Graf 30 for 30. Oh, yeah. Just about how great her legs are? Yeah, just explore the Steffi Graf. Or do you want me to do the 30 for 30 about the brief period in which Barbara Streisand dated Andre Agassi? Oh, it was a collision of hairdos unlike anything ever seen. That's the 30 for 30 that I'm planning. Did that really happen? Where was I? Mean, I? Reports say. I'm going to have to research that. I love that there's idea. There's a lot of, if in Brookshield's new book, there's a lot of fun Andre Agassi trivia. There's an amazing moment where she's like. I like, like that you read Brooke Shields' new book. I read excerpts and it's very good. Okay. And there's an amazing part where she's like, basically where like Andre admits he's addicted to meth. Or some crack. Yeah. He admits he's been soaking crack. He admits he's been doing some drug that, like, you and I would not do casually. Would not even know And Brooke's like, like, I didn't understand why he couldn't entrust me, especially because I had been so supportive to him when he revealed to me he was wearing hair pieces. So that was his other big secret, was that he was wearing, like, when he revealed that his hair was a wig. Was that a secret, though? I mean... I never, at any point in my life, felt like that was really his hair. No. Or when it, when it got a little wonky there at the end. Literally, well, I feel like like more scared talking about this than anything else. I'm like Andre Agassi. We don't. Show Brooke Shields is tall too. She's a babe and she she's would, so smart. She would she would whip both of our asses. But I feel like Andre Agassi is going to show up to our house and just like beat us with a hair with an aged hair piece. <laughs> He's from Vegas too. Yeah, you he knows people with people from. Yeah. Whenever someone tells me people. they're from Vegas, I'm like back slowly. Kimmel's from Vegas. Don't I know. Trust that dude so either. I trust. I trust Jimmy. Yeah, but he'll, 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 he has a dark side. I've seen it. Really? Oh, yeah. He's, all he ever does is like make me fresh mozzarella and like talk to me about he does. smart he stuff. He cooks. He's very doting. Yeah. He's a doting friend. By the way, I think I want to just take a moment to let you know how great your beard looks. <laughs> Thank beard you. Beard season. Beard season. It's winter. It keeps me warmer. Yeah. You look great. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's Lena. It's ten, an honor to be here. Ten girls episodes. Ten girls episodes. First one aired last night. And then we've been renewed for season five. So. Good. We know we'll make at least 52 episodes of Girls over the course of history. And when does your book come out in paperback? They, I don't know yet. Oh, okay. I guess you're supposed to just keep trying to shill that thing hardcover till people give up. Yeah, pretty much. But people have been really nice about it. And I have to say, in conclusion, that I'm great, always grateful to start dialogue, whether it's personally painful for me or not. And yes. I'm grateful to all the people who bought the book and to the people who didn't and to you for having me here. Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> Good luck with everything. Lena Thanks, Dunham, Phil. everybody. Check her out on Twitter. Yeah. Back in the BS Report later this week. Take care. Thank you for downloading the BS Report with Bill Simmons. Too much fun. Check out more podcasts at the iTunes Music Store or at PodCenter at ESPNRadio.com. Peace out.